Well, we are now for the second week in Psalm 139. Uh, Many people say this is their favorite psalm in all of the Psalter. And last week, we looked at the first three sections, the first 18 verses. And what we saw there is that the God of the Bible is unlike any of the false gods that many would want to worship. He is unlike the distant God of American religion, but instead is right there and inescapable. He is unlike every other false God out there. He's completely different, completely holy, and therefore worthy of our full worship and obedience. That's what we saw last week in the first 18 verses. This week, we look at the last six verses, and what we see there is that if this God is totally different from any other God, then having a relationship with him looks different than following any other God. Now, this would make sense. The religion that you participate in, the religious things you do, the things you do to worship your God, they're going to look different based on what you think this God is like. Uh, If the God of most American religion is a distant God who is not involved in our lives, well, it would begin to make sense that worshiping him would mean going to church maybe on Christmas and maybe on Easter and maybe for your wedding and not really very much often. If he's distant, I'll be distant too, right? But what about the God of the Bible? What about the God of Psalm 139 whose presence we cannot escape? What does, what does having a relationship with him look like? That's the question that we will ask this morning. Uh, if you're not there, go ahead and turn to Psalm 139. We'll read the whole thing just so you can get the picture of it all. But the morning sermon is on the last six verses. The Spirit says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light around me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for the darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? Hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. 
Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The words of the Lord, may all flesh tremble. What we have in these last six verses are two marks of a healthy relationship with the God of the Bible. Two marks that are not that common in the church today and have not been over history. But I think by the time we are done, we will see that they are necessary, a needed part of the Christian life if we are going to follow this God of the Bible. My prayer this week has been, and it continues to be, that God would use these six verses this morning to make us more and more into a city on a hill that shines brightly like a light and holiness. The sort of place that outsiders look at and say, something is different about those people. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to go find out so that they might see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. So, two marks of a healthy relationship with God. Before we get there, though, there are some of you, or maybe some of you here, who do not have a relationship with God. And so, if we're going to talk about how to make that relationship more healthy, we first need to talk about how you can have a relationship with Him. Now, you might assume that just by default, if you'd like to be friends with God and have a relationship with Him, then you can just have that. But there is a big problem in that God and His holiness made us for good things, but we have all chosen to rebel against Him. And so our sin against Him has put this just big barrier, this chasm between us and Him. And so when you have wronged somebody and you want to have a relationship with them again, you've got to be reconciled, right? You've got to seek them and they've got to choose to forgive you and that's how reconciliation works. That is what we need with God to have a relationship with him. And the good news is, the news that I love to proclaim here and that we celebrate here, we've already sung of this morning, is that God offers that freely to anyone who would receive it through Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus is God made man. My old Sunday school teacher used to say 100% God, 100% man. All right, fully God, fully man, walked the earth with us. He lived without sin. The only person who ever lived without sinning against God. And then willingly died a painful death to pay for sins that were not his own. All right, he didn't sin, but he died anyway to pay for the sins of those who would trust him. Then he rose from the dead, and in rising from the dead, proved himself victorious over sin, proved himself the one who can conquer death for us, and now he just stands ready to give forgiveness for anyone who would trust in him. The Father, God the Father, stands in heaven, ready to receive his son's death as payment for all of your sins, all of our sins, for any of us who would trust this Jesus. And so if you want to receive that forgiveness have that relationship with God again, what you must do is look to God even now and just just cry out to Jesus for that forgiveness. God, would you forgive me in Jesus' name? Jesus, would you secure my forgiveness for me? If you're willing to say that to God in faith, that's what we often call here faith in Jesus Christ. It is how the Lord has chosen to save those who would come back to him. And that's available to each and every one of us this morning. I call you now, if you have never trusted Jesus for that salvation, Do that now. Cry that out to him even silently. And then, even as we talk about having a healthy relationship with God, you can hear those words as one who, once again, has a relationship with him, one who can call him father, one who can call him friend, if you would turn from your sins 
and trust him. As we even saw testimony this morning of a young man buried in water and risen to walk in new life. That can be you this morning. For many of us, that is us, right? That's our testimony. Jesus saved us. We were baptized, right, to show that he, we died with him and we are risen with him. And we have now a relationship with him. What does it look like for that relationship to be healthy and good? Well, that's where we go now, and that's where we look at the end of Psalm 139. I'll give you the two marks first, and then we'll spend a lot of time on the first one, probably because those four verses are confusing to a lot of us. It takes a lot of care there. And we'll spend a little bit of time on the second one, too. First mark of a healthy Christian life, a healthy relationship with God, is separating yourself from God's most predatory and blasphemous enemies. Separation from God's most predatory and blasphemous enemies. And the second mark of a healthy relationship with God is inviting him to search you for sin and correct you. Again, we'll deal with those one at a time. We'll spend a lot of time on the first one, and then we'll spend a little time on the second one as well. We look first at verses 19 through 23, where we see the one mark of separating yourself from God's most predatory and blasphemous enemies. These are verses that many of you have looked at as you have read your Bible and been puzzled by. And I know that because you've told me that. Some of you last week knew that we were going to be here this week and said, I'm looking forward to seeing what you've got to say about that. Right? That's a difficult one to hear and understand. The main reason, there are a few reasons, but the main reason is that the word hate is used in a way that we're not used to seeing it used. Right? Your mom probably taught you, don't even use the word hate, don't even say that you hate anyone, and now we see a man of God using this word. Well, we'll unwind that a little bit and understand it. Uh, the truth is, in the broader definition of the word, the way the Hebrew people use the word hatred, there is a sense in which we're called to have a hatred for the things of the world. But it's probably not what you're thinking when I say that. Right? We use the word hate with each other to talk about an ill will. Right? You want to hurt somebody, you want to do a bad thing to somebody, and so you hate them. That's the modern English concept of hatred. And we are accused often of being a people who are hateful, despite our goodwill and good intentions for everybody in the world. The Hebrew people, this is 3,000 years ago, words used differently, different language, they had a different and broader concept of the word hate, and you can see this throughout the Old Testament. Uh, at the core of the Hebrew concept of hatred was rejection. There was always a sense of rejection, uh, but in many different ways. Sometimes there would be a physical separation, like you're separating yourself from somebody, and they would, they would call that hatred. Sometimes there would be kind of a bad taste in your mouth about somebody, they'd call that hatred. Uh, sometimes it would be a total and complete rejection. Sometimes you would be choosing one thing over another, and they would call that hatred. But always there was a sense of rejection. And that leads to some situations where you can be reading your Old Testament and see the word hate and be like, that, that seems like a strong word for that situation. I'll give you a couple examples. The Proverbs say, be not often in your neighbor's house, lest he get his fill of you and hate you. Now, if you've ever had a guest stay for too long, you know what that feels like, right? Like, I, I would like them to leave. They've been, they've been around a little bit too long. Maybe you're getting a bad taste in your mouth. You want them to go. But, but hate? Like, I wouldn't think of using the word hate. for If we were writing it, we wouldn't use the word hate. Well, 
for the Hebrew concept of hate, that works, right? You, you want them to go. You want them out of the house, and you're getting a little bit of a, a bad taste in your mouth toward them. That fits the Hebrew definition of hatred. Another time it's used this way, uh, there's a man named Jacob in the Old Testament, and he is guilty before God of polygamy, of having four wives at the same time, uh, which is a whole story we can't get into. But part of it there is that there are two of his wives who are sisters. One is Rachel and one is Leah. And he is just fully infatuated with Rachel. Oh, he loves her. He delights in her. She's clearly the favorite one of the two. And he chooses her to delight in over Leah. He doesn't really act cruelly to Leah or say anything cruel to her, but his delight is clearly in Rachel. He's choosing her over Leah. And the way the Bible words this is he loved Rachel and he hated Leah. Again, we would look at that word and say, ooh, that's a, that's a pretty strong word for what we're seeing described in their relationship. But it fits with the Hebrew concept of hatred, a sense of rejection, sometimes choosing one thing over the thing that you hate, right? When you choose one and not the other, it means you love the one and hate the other, that they spoke in absolutes like that. Sometimes a little coldness or a bad taste in your mouth about it, but always some sense of rejection. This use of the word carried over into the New Testament, although the New Testament uses it in other ways, even the way we would use it sometimes. Jesus says, for instance, anyone who comes to be my disciple and does not hate his mother, father, brother, sister, wife, and children is not worthy to be my disciple. And again, we read that and we're like, you got, you got to hate your wife to, to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, what he means is you must choose him over everybody else, right? Your allegiance is to him and it is not for everyone else. So when you've got to choose between what your wife wants and what Jesus wants, you've got to give Jesus what he wants. When you've got to choose between what your father is asking you to do and what Jesus is asking you to do, your allegiance is with Jesus. And so the way that the Bible uses the word, that again fits with the definition of hatred. And so when David uses words like hate here, he's using a much broader term and idea than we are inclined to hear when we read it into him. So the question we've got to ask is, how does he really feel about these people? What are his feelings toward them? And when we look at it, we'll see that many of the parts of the Hebrew concept of hatred are there, but the ill will and the desire to do something malicious to them is not there. Let's look at the text a little bit. Verse 19, in the second line, we can see that he wants to be separated from these people, whoever they are. He says, oh, men of blood, depart from me, right? This is like the guy that stayed too long at your house and you want him to go, like get out, right? He wants, whoever these people are, he wants them out of his courts, out of what's going on. He wants to be separated from them. So the separation is there. In verse 21, you can see there is a bad taste in his mouth toward whoever these people are. And he says, do I not loathe, this is the second line, do I not loathe those who rise up against you, right? That loathing, that sense of, oh, like whoever these people are, he's got some ugh, in his heart, like toward what they are doing for the way they are rising up against God. And in verse 22, you can see that this sense of separation and non-allegiance with them is complete. It is full and complete. There's no sense in which he is an ally of whoever these people are. There's a divide and we are on opposite sides of the divide. 
So all of the Hebrew concept is there, right? There's the bad taste in his mouth. There's the separation from. There's a sense of rejection and choosing God over them. They are his enemies because they're choosing to be his enemies. He's willing to count that, right? Because there is a divide between them. That's a sense of how he feels about them. So the first question is, how does he feel about them? He feels a total sense of separation. And in the Hebrew concept of hatred, a sense of hatred for them. Second question that helps to clarify what's going on is who are these people that he's talking about? Is this everybody who's ever done anything wrong? Is the, who is this? And we'll see as we examine it, it is right to feel this way about some people. I think you'll, you'll agree with that once we get through all of this. Who are these people? In verse 19, we see that they are violent and bloodthirsty people. He says in the second line, O men of blood, depart from me. So these are not your everyday people who disagree with you. This is not the guy who disagrees with your politics on the internet. This is not your average person caught in sin. This is someone who routinely, out of desire, preys on people. This is a, a murderer, someone who regularly rapes people. This is a bloodthirsty person David is talking about here. We see in verse 20 that they use God's name to lie about him. He says, they speak against you, talking of God, they speak against God with a malicious intent. And in the second line, they take his name in vain. See, these are people who would stand up and say, hear the words of the Lord, with God's authority would lie about him to people. And they're doing this to pray violently on the vulnerable, as we saw in the verse before that. And then we see in verse 21 why these people would do this, uh, and it is because of their hatred for God. He says, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Or if we're going to be really literal, do I not reject those who reject you, O Lord? So these are people who have cast God out of their moral life. And with no regard for God at all, they are willing to lie in his name, using his authority to prey on the most vulnerable people in violent and bloody ways. David, the king of Israel, the one charged with justice in Israel, looks at that and says, oh, right, that, that makes my blood boil, right? I, I do not, let those people are not on my side. I don't want them in my court. I want them to depart from me. And so what we're looking at then is toward the most predatory and blasphemous of God's enemies, the way we should handle that is, is full separation from, even with a bad taste in our mouth, to say, nope, that is, that is not me. When we look at the leaders of ISIS on TV, we say, no, right? When we bring up people like that, there's a bad taste in your mouth, isn't there? Just as David says, I loathe those who rise up against you. When it comes to that sort, that level of rebellion against God, the call upon God's people is full separation to say, no, we are, we are not like that. There's a divide between what we're doing and what they are doing. There's an example of people like this in the Bible, actually. Uh, it's the Pharisees uh, in the Gospels. Uh, here are people who claim to be the ones speaking for God, right? And Jesus confronts them very directly with some zeal saying, you guys are devouring widows' houses, right? You're taking the most vulnerable people and claiming to speak for God, stealing everything they have from him, right? So he's calling out their abuses, and he is doing it with zeal because these are 
bloodthirsty men who are standing in the place of God, speaking for God and using that authority to prey on people and to hurt them. The man of God, Jesus Christ himself, stands against that and says, no, no, we, we are on opposite sides if we are doing that. And there's continual enmity between him and the Pharisees as that whole story unfolds, which he's not instigating. No, it's just there because of the things that they are doing. So, In a nutshell, what David is doing is he is separating himself fully and completely from God's most predatory and blasphemous enemies. There is a broader teaching here in the Bible that David is getting at, and that is the unmistakable divide between God's people and God's most pointed enemies in the Bible. Uh, This is a divide that begins early on in the Bible. As soon as the serpent tempts Eve and Adam into sin, God comes into the garden and is speaking to each of them. And he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between your seed and the woman's seed. And then he predicts that a seed of the woman will come up and crush the serpent, that being Jesus who will come and crush the serpent. The part I point out here, though, is there is this enmity between the seeds of the serpent and the people of God. And you begin seeing in Genesis the lineage of Seth traced and the lineage of Cain, the murderer, traced. And there's this separation between the two of them, which then continues throughout the scripture and the gospels. You're seeing Jesus and his disciples on one side and the Pharisees on the other side. And there is just this necessary gulf between them. Sometimes it's called Babylon. Sometimes it's called the Pharisees. However, it's rearing its head. The seed of the serpent is always there, always against the people of God. And there's always this necessary divide there. And so for the Christian, there is a difficulty there because on one hand, we are called to love our neighbors and love our enemies. And on the other hand, if you take the meaning of the word hatred appropriately, there is a hatred there. There is an enmity there. There is a sense that we are not allied with what they are doing. So there's some tension there, isn't there? How are we supposed to handle, how are you supposed to handle as a Christian uh, the most bloodthirsty and horrific of God's enemies? How, How do you handle that? That's a difficult thing to do. On one hand, Jesus does teach to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. He teaches that God loves the whole world to the degree that he gave his only son so that those who believe in him could be rescued and have eternal life. So there is a love that we are called for. Specifically, that love is good deeds toward everyone and proclaiming the gospel to everyone. So in that way, we're called to love everybody, even our enemies and especially our enemies. After Jesus says to love your enemy, he goes on to say, if your enemy is thirsty, give him a drink. If he's hungry, feed him. If he needs clothes, clothe him. Right? It's about good deeds done to all, and that way we're called to love everyone. Also, the book of 1 John says, do not love the world or the things of the world, for whoever loves the world doesn't have the love of God in him. And James says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Wait a minute, I thought we were supposed to love the world. Now now we're not supposed to love the world. What's going on here? Well, when they say this, they are talking about separation in terms of allegiance. We are on opposing sides, and we are fully separated from what they're doing. We see what they're doing. We say, I want nothing to do with that. But we are to love our enemies. So there's a full separation on one hand, 
and a love for those who are against us, on the other hand. Walking in that is one of the great difficulties of the Christian life. Just to even get it straight in your mind, wait, love and don't love at the same time. Like, what's going on here? To walk in a way that is allied with Jesus, loyal to Jesus, and not allied with the world, yet to act with love for the world and to preach with love for the world. Now, that takes the wisdom that comes from the Spirit of God to live in that every day. Now, the good news is that we have some examples of it. In fact, David himself is an example of this. David lived with that righteous separation from the world and loyalty, and he also loved his enemies at the same time. Uh, He was anointed king, and right after he was anointed king, a giant named Goliath came in with with bloody threats to the people of Israel, right? A bloodthirsty man taunting them, taunting the name of God, boasting lies about the name of God, taunting against him. David rises up in zeal and says, well, I'll go out there and fight him. Goes out there with stones and a sling and just pop, right? And all the zeal in the world just takes the giant down. Why? Because there's a clear enmity there, right? Not long after this, the man who is on the throne at the time, though David is the rightful heir to it, the man Saul, who is on the throne, begins to hunt David. And there is a manhunt that goes on for several chapters in the book of 1 Samuel. All of this time, David loves his enemy who is pursuing him. Two times he has the opportunity to take his enemy's life. He says, no, I won't do it, right? He cuts off a corner of Saul's robe while he has sneaked and snuck in there into the cave and later shows it to him and said, I cut this off of your robe because I could have killed you, but I didn't do it, right? This is a man who loves his enemies and loves the one who is pursuing him. Saul later dies, and even though that's the moment when he becomes king, he doesn't jump up and down and say, hey, I'm king. He mourns for Saul because he loves his enemies, Other kings rise to the throne and they hunt down the descendants of the one who preceded them to make sure nobody rises up against them. David searches out Saul's descendants so that he can bless them. He finds one whose legs are lame and he says, you know, it'll be tough for you to feed yourself. Why don't you come eat at my table for the rest of your life? Why does he do that? Because he loves his enemies. Here's a man who holds in tension this difficulty that we all must live in to love the world and be separated from the world at the same time. We have an example of that in David. We also have an example of it in Jesus. When Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, Zacchaeus, all sorts of people who have lived in rebellion from him, he is so gracious to these people who have made themselves his enemies. When he is hung up on a cross, he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. When the Pharisees come against him, right, these are the the violent, bloodthirsty, those who blaspheme against God, when they come against him, he rises up with zeal and rebukes them. And yet when one of them wants to come by night, uh, uh, his name is slipping my mind, John 3, Nicodemus, when Nicodemus comes to him uh, in John 3 to talk to him privately, man, y'all are on that, good job, right? He's gracious to him, he talks to him, he takes his time to lead this man hopefully into faith in Jesus Christ because he's at once gracious and loving to his enemies and rising up with zeal against those who are against God in a bloodthirsty and ferocious manner. So there's the broader teaching What we're zeroed in on here at the end of Psalm 139 is that zeal with which we are called to separate ourselves from God's most ferocious enemies. 
What this is not, this is not license to be a jerk to those who disagree with you. Just in case you were hoping, oh man, I can't wait to get on Facebook this afternoon and just rip somebody and now I got the Bible to tell me to do. No, okay, hear it from your pastor's voice, no. All right, what it is is a call to separate fully and completely from the most ferocious enemies of God. There's a really good modern example of this, I believe. Uh, It actually began right here in Indianapolis when the Indy Star broke the story that several U.S. gymnastics, female gymnasts, uh, were all making the same accusation against one doctor, Larry Nassar, who was a trainer for gymnastics, right? And he had been abusing many, many young women, abusing them sexually as they were his patients uh, in this gymnast association. Uh, It was our newspaper here at the Indy Star that, that broke that story. And the very first woman to come out and say, this happened to me, and it wound up being like one or 200 people who were willing to say that this had happened to him, uh, she was there for almost all of the trial. Her name is Rachel Denhollander. She's a Christian. Uh, She's now an activist who stands up for women who are victimized like this. She's there for the trial, and at the end, before the sentence is given, Uh, The judge invited her to speak, and so she chose to take opportunity. Uh, You can read online her full statement. I'm going to read to you a a little less than a quarter of it. And as I read it, let's just imagine this story. This is a woman who has been treated so wrongly by this male. It's hard to think of a more wrong thing you can do than to take advantage of a young girl like this. Here she is, an adult now, able to speak to him. During the court case, he has brought his Bible to the courtroom and kind of feigned repentance a little bit, but she can see through that and see that that's just an attempt to get the judge to be nice to him. Uh, As I read her words, listen for, on one hand, a love for our enemies and a full separation from the wickedness that they're participating in. This is five or six paragraphs long, but I think it's so powerful. She says to him, You have become a man ruled by selfish and perverted desires. A man defined by his daily choices repeatedly to feed that selfishness and perversion. You chose to pursue your wickedness no matter what the cost to others. And the opposite of what you have done is for me to choose to love sacrificially, no matter what it costs me. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on the basis of that Bible that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible that you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself, loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to live this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness. But Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know that forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror, without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. If the Bible you carry says that it is better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble and you have damaged hundreds, the Bible you speak of carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. 
Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you've done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Jesus Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Do you hear a love for your enemies in those words? Do you hear full separation from worldliness in those words? Friends, this is a Christian example of the very thing David shows to us through his whole life, even through these words. Oh, may it be true for all of us who have enemies like this. It could look many different ways. You, you could wind up on staff at a church somewhere one day and admire your pastor so much until he gets up and preaches a false gospel and then does it again the next week and then does it again the third week. And eventually, you might have to rise up with all the zeal of David and say, we are opposed if you're going to keep preaching this gospel. I love you, but we are opposed if you're going to keep preaching this gospel. Some of you who are young may move out to California one day and be part of a great tech startup that boasts very much of all the ways they're going to change the world, but what you see in your bosses perhaps will be a very different story, and you may have to rise up with all of the zeal of David and say, I'm opposed to this. I want no part of this. When it happens, may we, like David, like Jesus, and like this Rachel, love our enemies while also separating ourselves from everything that they are doing. So that is today the first mark of a healthy Christian life, full separation from God's most bloodthirsty and ferocious enemies. That's necessary because we are living in a world that is still fully and completely in rebellion against God, and we're trying to live loyally to him. Now, there's another question I need to ask, because it's not just the world out there that rebels against God, right? Right? There's a problem in here too, isn't there? If our problem were just all those other people, we wouldn't need the last two verses of this song, but we have sin in us too. And so how do you live loyally to God when not only is everybody else rebelling against him, but you still are too, and you know it. And not only this, you know, I mean, I know what I used to be like before I came to Christ. We know how good we are at justifying our ways and deceiving ourselves and convincing ourselves that we're not in sin when we really are. How do you live when you know your heart is like that and you want to be loyal to God? That's what the last two verses help us with. Let's look there now and we see the second mark of a really healthy relationship with this God. It is inviting God to search you for sin and correct you. Let's read the last two verses. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is not a man who is ultimately focused on other people's sin, is he? No. He wants the mirror turned on his own sin. He wants his own sin to be found out so that he can rid himself of it. Now, if the God of the Bible knows everything about us, this must be a mark of a healthy relationship with him, asking him, God, you know my sin better than I do. Would you search me and would you reveal it to me? 
Let me tell you a story of a, of a Colts fan named Mike Schroeder. Some of you guys saw this on CBS News, uh, local news, about uh, a year or so ago. You know, we were going through a season where none of the sports were being played, and so they had to do other stories about sports. So they were profiling, you know, raving fans and stuff like that. And they told this entertaining story of a man named Mike Schroeder, who was a lifelong Colts fan. Uh, he was raised here in Indiana. I think he's in his 60s now, uh, back when it was the Baltimore Colts and not the Indianapolis Colts. But even though he was here, he was a Baltimore Colts fan. His family was Baltimore Colts family. And so you can imagine how excited he was when he got the news that the Baltimore Colts are moving to Indy and he's going to get to cheer for them right here. He was thrilled. This is a team I already cheer for. Now they're, I don't have to move to them. They're moving to me. So he got even more into the Colts, was there all the time, you know, had all the gear, one of those guys. Uh, he had a military career, bounced around for a while, retired from the military because you can do that at like four and a half, you know, so he does that. Um, and I think he's like 40 or so, retired from the military, moves to Ohio to take a job with the Postal Service. How cool would it be to work full time and be retired? That's awesome. Anyway, uh, he does this for the Postal Service, right? Drawing retirement, drawing a salary, living the life and says, okay, I live farther from my Colts now, got a little extra money. My wife and I are going to buy season tickets, and we are going to be at Lucas Oil Stadium for every game. So every Sunday home game, he's driving seven or eight hours up to Indy, driving back at the end of it, doesn't miss a home game for years. Until one fateful day, it's a Thursday night game. Those of you that have season tickets know how frustrating that could be. You've got to move your whole schedule around. Thursday night game. And his boss at the Postal Service says, okay, I can get you Thursday off to drive up there. I'm going to need you on Friday. I can't, I can't give you Friday off. Somebody's got to do the route. You're the only one who can do it. And so Mike's got a choice to make. You can't skip work at the post office. You know, they, mail needs to be delivered. What's he going to do? And so he goes in on Wednesday and retires from the Postal Service. The end. I'm going into retirement so that I can go to this game tomorrow. Makes the seven or eight hour drive up to Indy, drive home, and begins retirement in earnest. They lost the game, if you care. Yeah. Okay, so there's, there's somebody who's loyal to the Colts, right? Okay. Just like Christians are loyal to God. All right, let's imagine that you are at a game with Mike, and he's decked out in his Colts gear, head to toe, and you know, you're friends with him, so you're decked out in your Colts gear too, and you're there, you're cheering, you're having fun, and you notice that on his back, we don't know how it got there, but somehow a Baltimore Ravens sticker is stuck on his back. And this guy's the most loyal Colts fan you've ever known. He can't see it. He doesn't know it's there. Does he want you to tell him that it's there? Yeah, I believe he does. If his love for the Colts is that strong, the second he knows there's a Baltimore Ravens sticker on his back, he is ripping that thing off, right? This is what people who are loyal to something want to do. If there is any mark of betrayal or disloyalty to the one that they love, they're like, get it off of me. If he for some reason feared that there would be people sneaking Ravens stickers on his back, he might even ask, hey, would you look at my back and just make sure that I'm clear, right? Because this is a guy who's loyal to his Colts and he wants to make sure there's not a single mark of treachery on him. This is how Christians approach our God, knowing that we still sin against him. We would not be deceived and have a single mark of treachery still on us. If we're doing something he is not pleased with, we want to know about it, right? 
Because we're people that love God. We're people that see the seriousness of our sin against him. We're people who know what forgiveness and grace feel like. So if somebody points out to us, hey, that there's something going on, boom, we want that out of there, right? And so you can see why David would say to God, God, would your all-knowing spirit search me, reveal every raven sticker that is on my back, reveal every sin that is still in me. Let me not be deceived as I sin against you. So this is then a mark of a healthy relationship with God, regularly looking to him and saying, God, God, search me. God, reveal my sin to me. I don't want to keep sinning against you, but I know I am. What is it? Reveal it. There is no command in the Bible for how often we're supposed to do this. So you can't, you can't go all legalistic about it and say, I have to do it this often. But as often as we sin, we should probably do it a lot. If you sin all the time, you should probably be asking God to search you all the time. Uh, since I began studying this for this sermon a week and a half ago, um, one unique thing about me is I've always, my whole life had a hard time falling asleep at night. I can remember being 10 years old and going to bed at nine and not being asleep till midnight. It's just, just how it has, has been for me. Uh, so I'm always looking for something to do as I'm drifting off to sleep. What I've started to do, and I would commend to you if you have trouble sleeping, it's just lay down in your bed, turn the light out. You know, the whole routine is done. Very last thing you can do in the day is pray this very prayer. God, would you search me? Would you reveal any sin I've committed today to you? And then just go through your day from when you got up. Remember everything you did. And you'll be amazed at how much the Spirit of God will point out so that you can right then say, oh, God, that was wrong of me. You're right, that was sin. And just keep going through the day. And then when you're done, you can truly rest your soul on your bed there, right? resting in the forgiveness of God and Jesus. Now, I can't guarantee that'll help you sleep at night, but the very least, it'll help your soul to rest. Maybe it'd be better for you to do it every morning as part of your morning quiet time, reading the Bible, doing your prayers in the morning. Maybe that'd be a good time to do it. At the very least, we make sure to do this every Sunday morning as we gather together, and we do it early in the worship service. That's because if we're going to be singing to the Lord the way that we are, and if we're going to hear his word, we can't be doing this stuff blind to the sin in our lives, right? We need God to reveal how we are wronging him before we can do this. Otherwise, we'll be coming with hard hearts that aren't ready to hear. I know for me, I mean, we would do this just for this reason alone, but I need to bring my sin to God before I can preach to you. You don't want your pastor preaching to you blind to the sin in his own life. No, so I need this as much as you do. We pray together, God, search us and reveal our sins to us. So this is a healthy mark in the Christian life. How often you do it is up to you. That's a matter of conscience. But regularly, since we sin regularly, we should be looking to God and say, God, reveal our sin to us. We know we're blind to it. Would you show us how we can better follow you so that we can then confess our sins to him? First John speaks to that too and says, if we say we have no sin, we make God a liar. The truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. What a blessing to get to bask every day in that forgiveness. That's a mark of a strong relationship with the all-knowing, all-present God. If he knows everything about us, let's get on the same page with him. So there we have two marks of a healthy relationship with God, then separating yourself fully from God's most blasphemous and predatory enemies, 
and inviting God to search you for sin, to point out your sin so that you can confess it to him and be made fully right with him. They all come down to this one truth, and that is that this God, unlike any other God out there, is holy, and he is worthy of our full loyalty. As we look to the cross of Jesus, we see the terrible price of our sin against this holy God. And we say, a God like that, a God who is not only worthy of a sacrifice like that, but willing to give it and make it for our behalf, a God like that is worthy of my loyalty. So may he make of us then a people fully loyal to him, a people that outsiders look at and say, there is something beautiful and refreshing there that I don't understand, but I'm going to go find out about it. Would we shine like a city on a hill through the power of these verses? Why don't we pray together and ask God to do that for us?